episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We are glad to have you back in the place with us again today. Uh, for those who are new, we've recently gotten a huge boost of subscribers. So for those who are new, uh, my name is Jay. I'm one half of the dynamic duo that makes this uh, podcast go. And I have my assistant here. <laughs> assistant, you, you caught that, guys. This is Dr. Cole here. It's one of the, uh, the voice you guys love to hear or will come to love to hear. Right, right, right. I, I let him do most of my scheduling and things like that. It <laughs> keeps things real simple for him so he don't get confused or nothing. Like uh, but this guy get to the show. Right. So we just me, me and Cody, we were just talking. We're both on uh, the spine service right now, man. How has that been treating you? Oh, it's good. You know, I, I didn't do a, a day of spine as a med student. I didn't really hear much of it because, as you know, we didn't have any orthopedic program. And I really didn't do anything when even when I rotated. So uh, just starting off this rotation as a third year is really my first and only exposure to spine. I, I think it's pretty cool. The procedures are pretty, pretty neat, you know, going down and, and doing ACDF and, you know, you're dissecting around and, and you can palpate the carotid arteries and, you know, you got the thyroid cards, everything. It's just, um, it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting procedure. And I, I know you say you're over there. Uh, you're over there doing spine too. They got you. They got you reading the book in, in the corner while the case is going on, huh? <laughs> no, man. No, man. You know, I'm I'm the uh, exposure king, man. I, I get down to the <laughs> spinous process quicker than anybody in the south, man. So oh, anybody in the south. Okay, yeah, there All you right. go. No, but uh, it, it's it's good. I I do think. You know, that's one of the good things about the doing spine. Most times, you know, most of your approaches are bilateral. So you're attending probably work on one side and you're on the other. And it gives you, a, you know, it gives you a chance to learn how to use the instruments, the, the bovi and just how to kind of dissect tissue. Um, so for that reason, it's good. And, you know, I'm enjoying the procedures. I think they do help. And uh, even, you know, kind of getting better at reading MRIs. That was something that I've been very weak on. Oh, it was yeah. Something I've been working on pretty, pretty you know, consistently since I've been on the service and it is getting better. Uh, so anyone who's who, uh, you know, if you're you call yourself interested in orthopedics, you probably need to learn how to read, you know, MRIs at least of the spine to some extent. Uh, you probably need to know all of your imaging, which, you know, I don't know, maybe we should do a show about that one day. But uh, definitely for, for spine, you got to have that MRI down and to the best of your ability. And it, you get better if you just keep looking at them. So every time you get something that comes across your, your, you know, your list, you need to look at it and see what you think. Um, but anyway, totally moving on, we'll, totally we'll, agree. we'll have more spine talks for you guys later today. We have a, a great uh, host, a great guest who came on and spoke more about basic sciences. So I think this oh, yeah. is something that we always push to the side, push to the side until right before test day. But it actually, you know, really helps you just kind of have some basic understanding of orthopedics. So I'm going to let uh, Cody go ahead and uh, get us going with this. Yeah, we had, uh, again, just like Dr. Fitz was, was talking about, uh, we have a great talk in store today. Uh, we have Dr. John Erst, who spoke to us a little bit about orthobiologics. So we talk about different types of graphs you can use. We even touch base on PRP injection. Um, you know, this is a really good talk. Definitely cover the basic science, and this is something that can definitely help build, you know, your fundamentals for the field of orthopedics, or for those that, are, that may be attending, listening, help remind you of some of the, uh, or maybe a refresher of some of the basic science, um, basic science facts and things that we do know. And a little bit about Dr. Erz. He graduated from Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine. He's actually one of the uh, master hip instructors, instructors in uh, ANA, which is the Arthroscopic Association for North America. They have a really good course, by the way. 
Um, and also, he is currently a uh, associate professor at the Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine and Wright State University School of Medicine. So again, great episode. You know, take your notes uh, during this or listen if you're listening to this while you're driving. Definitely pay attention and enjoy this episode with Dr. Erse. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We have another great guest here with us today. It's Dr. John Erse. Thank you so much for being here with us today, sir. Thanks, fellas. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And everyone know me. I'm Dr. Fitz, and I also have my sidekick here, Dr. Cole. <laughs> sidekick. <laughs> Funny. It's Dr. Cole here, everybody. How's it going? All right. So we have another exciting topic today. It's a little bit different than what we usually do. We're going to talk about um pretty much kind of ortho biologics and bone grafts uh it's kind of a basic science topic something new that we're trying to explore and i hope yeah. that you guys uh enjoy it i'm excited uh, before, for this i think it'll be a good topic i mean i enjoyed it even looking it up i learned a lot so i think it'll be i think it'll be great for a lot of people uh but always before we get too far we like to ask a few questions for our 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 host that we have on, or our guest, excuse me, our guest that we have on. So Dr. Erse, how did you get into orthopedics and why did you choose to spe your specialty? Well, I, uh, I worked in surgery as a scrub tech uh, all through college and um, I liked surgery. I knew I was going to do surgery and I looked at the different fields of surgery and I was going to either do vascular or ortho. And the vascular people were too sick. They had crappy joints, crappy bones. They were out of shape. They were diabetic. And you were back in the OR at 10 at night with a blue leg. So ortho is a pretty, you know, happy area. Most people feel better after you fix them. You get people walking, they can't walk. You fix broken bones that are crooked. Um, so it, it, it's got a lot of options. You can, you can sit, you can stand, you can do kids, you can avoid kids, you can, <laughs> back, you can avoid backs. You can find what yeah. you like because there's so much. And uh, it's a pretty healthy population. You know, we all have a few. Uh, elderly patients who die with hip fractures in their 90s, but sometimes those are things that are gonna happen at any age. So ortho's got some great opportunities for a person to just go into the area they like the most. And there's a lot of uh, really great new uh, cutting edge technologies in orthobiologics. And you know, just to spice up your, um, your talk from basic science stuff, you know, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about some of the PRP and stem cell uses later that that are going to be hopefully things people look to incorporate in their practice. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, we definitely um, are looking forward to talking a little bit more about that. But um, the second question I have, this is actually more just of a general question about yourself. Um, if you had one piece of advice that you'd give your 25 year old self, what would it, what would you give yourself? Like, what advice would you give yourself? Um, well, I think you, you go to school to learn how to learn. So the goal that you should have at any age, and whether it's mid-20s or not, is to keep learning things that make you better at what you do. And I try to learn something new, a new technique or a new type of surgery, or I challenge myself to say this is, a, this is something that's a game changer. And I think if you um, do something to, to, to grow your practice, to grow your knowledge base, um, 
I would say that's the, the first thing I do. And the second thing is look at your results and see how your patients do with what you're doing. And if they're doing well, keep doing it. And if they're not doing well, stop doing it. Sounds good. I mean, that's, that's uh, probably the best way to get things going and uh, start things off. Uh, And so we were talking offline and it kind of made us change the way we were going to do this a little bit. And it's just because Dr. Ursa has such a extensive history in orthopedics. He can give (laughs) us a little bit of a background on things. So our, our talk is going to be on various biologic agents that are used in the musculoskeletal injury. We're going to start off with uh, bone grafts used for fracture healing or, or augmenting spinal surgery or joint surgery and things like that. Uh, so Dr. Erse, what just in your, in your um, experience, what all has changed with over time with some of the things we've been doing with bone grafts and augmentation for fracture healing? Well, the the first thing we have is we have better forms of uh, internal fixation. Um, I mean, I I went to a, I don't want to tell you how old I am, but I went to the inaugural course in North America on locked uh, tibial and femoral nailing in Toronto in 1983. And I was your level of training. I was a first year resident. They sent me up there with the head of trauma from all these huge trauma centers around the country and in Canada. And we went up and found um, that you could take these long bone fractures with segmental bone loss and lock them above and below and find ways to get rigid fixation instead of just putting a single nail down and hoping for healing. Obviously, the um, emergence of, of locking plates and um, you know more anatomical uh, plates for each each injury we see. We have you know distal medial tibial plates. We have you know an ulna plate. We have things that are contoured anatomically. So I think the, the way we can rigidly internally fix problems is a great advance that's really just been about the last 30 years. Um, the things that then alter the ability for that to heal or because the fracture is so comminuted or uh, difficult in the area of poor blood flow, then we have to look at augmenting it with grafting and grafting materials have also evolved. We did an awful lot of iliac bone grafts, which were autologous use of bone from your own iliac crest. And the, the patients had more pain from where you took the bone graft than they did from their tibia. But it's great bone. You've got, you know, and we'll talk about some of the different types of bone graft materials. But, you know, now we have bone mineralized substitutes. We have, you know, putties. We have uh, things we just pull out of off a shelf to help healing. And then even some of the, you know, allografts that are either struts or in uh, cancellous form are pre-made for us. And then, you know, that makes the way we treat some of these more difficult injuries a lot easier. And, and from, you know, some of these different graphs that you're talking about, what are some of the, I guess, qualities or some of the qualities of the materials that we try to, um, that we try to figure out, you know, I've always, you always hear the terms osteoinjunction, um, you know, osteoconduction, osteogenesis, like what do those mean and kind of what, what part does it play in when we go to choosing what type of graph that we want to use? Well, you know, you just go back to the simple things like what's a graft and it's just viable tissue that's removed from a donor site and implanted into a recipient area to help either repairing uh, an area of injury or regenerating something that isn't there. So when you graft, you're just trying to replace or restore missing tissue. And the way you do it is you you find these different substitutes. 
So um, if you get something that causes the differentiation of stem cells into osteogenic cells, that's osteoinduction. Um, osteoconduction means you're adding a passive like scaffold. It's like a porous matrix, like a nest, almost like a nest the bird would sit in, upon which like new bone can form. And then osteogenesis means you're actually putting stem cells or osteogenic potential into an area that's going to lay down new bone because those pluripotential cells can differentiate into what they need to be in that location. And in this case, they become bone. So yeah, you made that sound so simple, but I just, and it, <laughs> no, right? and, and it really is, it really is. But I, I think it's something that's so basic that a lot of time uh, residents and students, we just kind of overlook that stuff. But I mean, it, it's, it's really good to know. So I'm, I'm really glad that you broke that down for us overall. Um, so getting into the actual bone grafts that, that are used today, um, I guess, and, and you said that iliac crest is something that was used a lot of at, back at one point of time. Can we start talking about the the different types of bone grafts, like say the um, like auto bone grafts versus allogenic bone graft and things like that? Sure. So what you want to do is you want to think simple terms, like what's the problem and then how am I going to solve it? So what is the problem? Maybe you've got a big cyst in the upper tibia and you want to fill it. So you've got a, a defect, cavitary defect, or maybe you have, uh, you want to fuse a basal joint, or maybe you want to fuse a hind foot articulation that's arthritic. So some of these indications for bone grafting are filling cavities or defects uh, from either a tumor or a cyst. Some are bridging joints for fusion purposes. Some are helping bridge a bony problem. Um, and then what you're trying to do is promote union or healing. So anything that's autographed, auto, just think of yourself, right? So that's bone that comes from the person themselves from one site to the other in the same individual. And we'll contrast that with allografts, which come from another person, obviously of the same species, because occasionally you'll see things called xenografts, which are from animals. I mean, if you ask people, did George Washington have wooden teeth? The average person says what? Uh, yes. Yeah. I and, think they say yes. <laughs> they all say yes. And the answer is no, he didn't. He actually had a bunch of xenografts. He had, he had a couple of pig's teeth. He had a couple of sheep's teeth. They actually transplanted from another species now. So autographed is the, uh, your own person, individual, getting it to himself. My iliac crest to my tibia. Allograft means you, Wendell, give me some bone. That's a similar species. We're both humans. But a xenograft is a different animal of another kind, right? A pigskin, uh, a porcine graft, some of these uh, dermal grafts on rotator cuffs, things like that. Are, those are from different species. So those are xenografts. So we're not going to even talk about those. But an autograft has a lot of advantages. It's ideal because it gives you um, uh, characteristics of new bone growth that like osteoconductivity, inductivity, and osteogenicity. And those, are, those can be either cortical or cancellous, but you can even get more, more um, uh, improved benefits from vascularized bone grafts. You'll see vascularized fibulas that are placed, um, and you'll see other um, autologous, what are called bone marrow grafts. So, um, and you don't have to just take them from, like an autograft doesn't have to just come from the iliac crest. Like if I'm doing a scaphoid nonunion, I can just go into the distal radius and take a little cortical window of bone out, reach in with a curette, I've got metaphyseal cancellous bone that I can put in my 
um, non-union side of my uh, scaphoid fracture and then put a compression across it with a screw of sort. Um, same thing with a proximal ulna metaphysis. You can do it from the upper tibial um, or distal tibial based on if you're doing some foot surgery. One of my uh, foot weenie partners does a lot of bone marrow <laughs> aspirates from the distal tibial metaphysis when he does his hind foot fusions. And he doesn't even centrifuge them. We can talk about concentrating and centrifuging stem cells later, but if you just want, you know, some mesenchymal um, stem cells from the marrow, you can literally just put that in the bone graft site. So the advantage of taking your own, your own bone is there's no immune reaction. There's no risk of um, infection. There's no, no transmission of hepatitis or uh, any type of significant donor um, site morbidity like infection um, or um, some viral uh, issue that you don't know the blood, the bone bank screen for you. Um, the disadvantage is you've got another location of morbidity like the iliac crest or the upper elbow or the distal wrist. You know, if you're taking robbing Peter to pay Paul, you're going to have a, a, a <laughs> site issue. Like I said, the person with the iliac crest may be complaining more about that than the tibia. But um, the other thing you can do, and, and you may not get as much as you'd like, you think, well, I'm going to get all this bone out of the iliac crest. Well, you're scraping with a curette and you've got a little cup full and you've got this big metaphyseal defect. All of a sudden, you don't really have enough. So you may only have limited quantities in the distal radius, great for a scaphoid, but not great for a, you know, a wrist fusion. So right. you can take you can take reamers from your hip replacement tray, take the very small ones, put them into the iliac crest on the outer table, and just ream that. Take the reamings. You can do, um, you know, different struts. You can take, as we said, uh, you can take cancellous um, autographs, and you know that's good when you're thinking when you think cancellous bone graft, and you want to take, you know, some metaphyseal bone. You want to think of smaller areas of uh, defects like five under five centimeters or so of bone loss that don't need a lot of structural integrity you're filling a bone cyst you're filling a small depressed tibial plateau fracture and then you want to put a plate under it well tamp up the um, articular surface from below with a tamp and then pack some you know some cancellous graft in there and put a, a lateral tibial plate on and a little kickstand screw like a bullhofner screw and then you've really added some graft consolidation to help fracture healing. And that's pretty simple. So I think that's the thing you have to think of is, am I going to use this person's own bone? And your patient's going to ask you, where's this from? I mean, if you have a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to say OHN to getting it from somebody else and the H isn't heck. So <laughs> you've know, you, you got to say, this is not your, your tissues, but it's been, you know, irradiated. It's frozen below X amount of um, degrees to get, uh, get it sterilized. It's been tested for viruses, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when you're doing Tiger Woods's ACL surgery, you may use a, a bone patella bone allograft, right. which you're hoping is, you know, not going to have a, a risk of AIDS or something, but right. you know, you're also saving him his own, auto, you know, autologous graft, which has adds a lot of morbidity to the surgery. So um, those are the things you want to tell people. Uh, and then the question is, how do you get graphs to incorporate into the areas that you're working. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, how do you choose, you know, say, you know, I have something that, you know, I have this fracture I'm trying to get to heal. How do you choose between using a cancellous bone graft versus like using a, a, a cortical bone graft? And like, 
what are the differences? Like what makes one, is there just, is there, you know, one has better strength versus the other? Like what, what kind of goes into your thought process behind that? Right. And that's a great question. So, you know, you know, we already talked about the size of the defect. So again, a cancellous graft is going to be morselized little chunks. That's going to be great to fill a defect, maybe a relatively small defect under five or six centimeters. Um, but it's not going to give you structural support. These are little chips of bone. So a cortical strut is going to give you some stability. So sometimes we'll use a, a cortical strut on a, um, a segmental loss on the tibia or the femur. Um, you've seen them, I don't know if you've ever seen them take a little cortical strut and use it on the upper humerus in a metaphyseal fracture. Great idea to help get an area of kind of soft bone to have some structural support before you plate it. A little bit of downside now, I hear from my shoulder guys that say the uh, reverse arthroplasties are harder in patients who have had those allograft strut grafts in the upper humerus. So um, always think of whatever you're going to do, is it going to be harder for you or some other guy later to, to, to bail out? So always think of, you know, everything in medicine is a, you know, give and take or, you know, pro and con and how, how much are you going to have to do later? The second thing you have to ask yourself is, what am I dealing with? Let's say you have a tibia that's eight months out. It hasn't healed. And you have to ask yourself a couple questions. Why didn't it heal? So is it because you have poor internal fixation or do I have infection? And is this a, you know, atrophic or a hypertrophic uh, delayed or non-union? Right. And therefore, right. you know, how much, you know, your x-ray usually shows you, um, is there a lot of callus or is there hardly any? Do I have a sclerotic line on a CAT scan or uh, on the films and there's no, you know, significant callus formation? Well, then you may need to add, you got to ask yourself, okay, I have an infection and I have instability. Well, most people would say you need to get stability first and um, then deal with the infection uh, later. Because if you don't have one or the other, what you may not want to do is take out a rod that's giving you stability, even though you have infection. You may want to clear up the infection, keep the stability, or go to an X-fix, and then plan to put a larger rod later. Those are things that are going to be based on what the fracture looks like, what's the biology like. You know, am I dealing with a diabetic, a smoker? Is this somebody with poor nutritional status? And then, you know, you should always look at the number one determinant of wound healing, and whether it's a hip fracture or a tibia fracture, is nutritional status. So right. you can assess visceral proteins with three things. You can look at albumin, look at transferrin, and you can look at the total lymphocyte count and just get your CBC and, you know, see if the total lymphocytes are over 1,500. If they're not, you've got some protein calorie malnutrition and you want to give this lady some bacon and eggs by vein afterwards. So, um, you know, look at the biology of what you're dealing with and you're, you know, you're going to have to incorporate that into your decision-making. Okay, absolutely. I think that was a good, good talk on the, you know, different uses of the different types of graphs and things. What, what, can you tell us a little bit of, about your experience with, or what you, your thoughts on using the different types of cements? Well, yeah, there's, uh, and so again, there's um, different types of um, graphs. So if you think in your brain autographed, you're thinking bone marrow, cancellous, cortical, vascularized. And then when you think of, you know, allograft, again, there's cancellous, cortical, and these demineralized things. Um, when you get to bone graft substitutes, those are things like calcium phosphate. And these are basically synthetic or composite materials that fill a defect to promote healing. And 
Um, you get osteoconduction with things like calcium phosphate, some of the ceramics, calcium phosphate cements, collagen. Um, you get osteoinduction with, with this DMB called demineralized bone matrix, some of the bone morphogenic proteins that have growth factors. And if you want, again, we talked earlier about osteogenesis, getting things to grow, that's really a bone marrow aspirate. Uh, and then there are some combined things that are called composites. Um, so uh, let's take an example of a um, osteonecrosis of the distal femur, or it could be the upper tibia. When you look at things called bone marrow lesions on your MRI, you may look at the knee and look at the meniscus and the ACL, but if you've got these bone marrow lesions behind the, um, you know, the subchondral bone, those are not only sources of either a stress fracture or an impending collapse of the joint, but they're also pain generator areas. So you can, you can take those patients, brace them, get a bone growth stimulator, put them on vitamin C and uh, citricol. Mm -hmm. uh, but you may have to actually fill those defects with something because you've got now a bone marrow defect. And that's what they're called. And there's two kinds. There's a type one and two based on whether it's a acute or kind of a subcondyl. It's really a stress fracture. And if you look on your T2 images of an MR someday, you'll see these bone marrow lesions above and below the knee. Uh, occasionally you see them obviously in the, in the hip as um, areas of osteonecrosis. When you fill those, you can basically drill into them and you can stick like, um, you know, Zimmer makes a, a thing called AccuFill, which is a injectable paste. It's mm -hmm. a calcium phosphate. And you literally, it's kind of like epoxy. You have two things. Once you mix them, they harden over 10 minutes. And usually you use your C-arm to guide where your drill needs to go and you're putting in that material in as a filler, as a kind of a moldable injectable gel or putty mm. um, in, into that area. And calcium phosphate is um, a um, osteoconductive uh, moldable thing. Some of these are in forms of pellets, some are in beads. You can also use um, some of the some of the beads and some of the pellets to combine with vancomycin powder for infected cases where you make little musket balls and mix your powder of your antibiotic to the powder of the cement, then add the liquid diluent. Now you've got a, a little rosary bead you can lay in and some of them actually dissolve and you don't have to go back and take them out. Um, so those are more when you're dealing with infection. In the, in the world of those calcium, I guess, entities, there's hydroxyapatite, which is osteoconductive, as is calcium phosphate and some of these collagen um, strips, they call them. So I think, you know, there are more expensive things like recombinant BMP. Yeah. Uh, we've heard of this stuff called Vivigen, which you use with or without uh, infuse. And those are, those are a little more expensive. I think Depew makes that through J&J, uh, &J. Um, but they're great for a... Uh, supercondylar femur fracture. Remember we talked about, we know some of these are bad actors. Some of these uh, non-unions, things that you know you can't get to heal. You want to add the kitchen sink if you can. And um, sometimes these are going to be, um, you know, not really commonly used at a surgery center location where they have to count their, their implants, you know, and count their dollars. But most hospital systems will find a way to to get those for you if they're on the formulary and they may only carry one or two brands. You know, you can have, you know, can have three kinds of subcutaneous suture. You're not going to have Dexon and Vicryl. You're going to get one or the other. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I think you, you say, what does my institution have that I'm going to work in? And um, that's what's available in the form of a, you know, an allograft as a, a substitute, or I, I can, insurances too will guide what you can or can't do. Um, I think I was talking to Wendell about the uh, proximal hip and avascular necrosis patients. Yeah. So you get a 32-year-old with AVN of the hip, and if they are in a pre-collapse phase, so if you if you remember the FECOT and our lay classifications, right. that's radiographic, not an MRI-based. Stolberg's is the MRI. But if you don't have a crescent sign, you don't have subchondral collapse, if you drill into those, if you leave them alone, they all end up with total hips within a couple of years. So yeah. the things most orthopods do is drill into it with a core decompression, and then 20% of those make it five years. But if you add a, you know, a, a you know, some osteogenic capability with like a, a bone marrow aspirate and stem cells and add that to some, some of this um, bone mineral matrix that serves as a nesting, like, a, like we talked about that bird's nest as a, as a scaffold. Well, those things have about an 80% success rate at five years. So you've gone from an 80% failure rate to an 80% success rate for total hips at five years. That's pretty good. Hair scores are better, delaying total joint replacements better, but now you've got a little bit of a wild card, and we'll talk a little bit about the orthobiologic stem cells and PRP and mm -hmm. their costs and who covers them and you know how much of the wild west it is trying to get them. So you may be using a Kmart substance like calcium phosphate, AccuFill, because the insurance is going to pay for you to put that in the distal femur, and they're not going to pay for you know little Billy to get stem cells. You know, little right. Billy is going to pay three grand, and that that. Price variation is very regional, by the way, and based on what part of the country you're in. Wow. Yeah, I think that was um, that was great. Excellent. And so, like, for the example, these are like patients that when they have these um, uh, this AVN of the hip, these patients that get like the vascularized fibular um, fibular fibular grafts, you know, th that's just an example of what you're saying of patients who um, who do better after you know after x amount of years just well no i'm not i mean you brought up a good point about vascularized fibular grafts and that's a huge surgery you're taking a strut of their own fibula with its vascular supply you're re-anastomosing it and putting it into the hip and drilling it in like a like a railroad spike into the femur and that's a huge surgery you need like two surgeons two teams two sites i'm talking about drilling in and like you would for a hip fracture with your with your drill guide in yeah. the area of necrosis, and then adding a bone marrow aspirate with with bone graft, and you can combine those. These are these are these studies are 15 years old now out of the mm -hmm. JBJS. These are these are um, um, you know multi center studies, and this has been around 15 years doing this with bone marrow aspirate saving hips and even some knees from total knees using bone marrow aspirate and bone graft. But is it well known in the literature? It's not. So you have to pull the articles. I send those into the insurance. I go, this is the reason I want to do this. And then there's still going to be a cost to the patient. They may not want that, but I tell them, look, you know, you want some guy to make an incision on your upper fibula near your peroneal nerve and take a chunk of your fibula out and then re-anastomose it and stub it up in your femur. I don't know. You know, to me, that's a huge surgery. I know Duke does a fair number of those. Um, but again, I think the literature has really got some um, pretty good ways to attack this without 
using vascularized fibulas in that area, but it's certainly a useful thing to do for segmental losses of the tibia, femur, where you need a strut and, and structural support, and, and then there's no healing. Again, that's, that's a, a good use for vascularized fibula. But in my hands, I mean, I've never done one of those or even sent someone for one of those. Uh, I'm just telling you, I'm sure that, that's a huge topic dealing with um, trying to avoid a hip replacement in a 32-year-old with AVM. So it just depends how much collapse they have, what you can do. Okay. And, and so I guess moving forward um, to, you know, kind of more biologics for fracture healing and, and PRP applications, um, if you can kind of go over in general what PRP is, I know that's something that we want to touch on. I actually just recently got a PRP injection in my elbow. Uh, that's funny that we're talking about it now. But um, you probably looked up a little bit about it before you did it. Oh, yeah, I did. But <laughs> um, let's, if, if you could, uh, just kind of give a, a general outline, kind of what PRP is, you know, kind of some of the uses for it um, and kind of the state of, of where we're at with this use right now. Okay, well, let's, let's start with uh, defining PRP. That's platelet-rich plasma. So it's basically taken from a simple blood draw in your arm. Um, and based on what you want to do, you're going to take that blood and you're going to say, what do I want and what do I not want in this blood? Mm -hmm. It depends where you're going to put it. Okay, so if you are going to put it in a knee with some chondromalacia or some type of mild arthritis, or if you're going to put it in a tendon of an elbow, for uh, lateral pericondylitis or tennis elbow, it's a different PRP solution for each area. And I'll tell you why. The things you want in a joint are the growth factors and the anti-inflammatory factors that are in you know, platelets. And there's 1,100 of them. So there's, there's vascular endothelial growth factor. There's um, fibroblastic. There's veg, uh, you know, there's, there's about... 10 of them. They're all GFs. Just think of growth factors. And there's a lot of those that do two things. They cut down inflammation and swelling. And I tell my patients, I, I break it into two categories. You've got people with arthritis and you have people with ligamentous problems and tendinous problems. So in a joint, you don't want to have things that are pro-inflammatory, right? You want anti-inflammatory effects. So a leukocyte-poor platelet-rich plasma is called, you know, LRPRP, I'm sorry, LP, leukocyte poor PRP. You'd want that in a joint because it doesn't have white cells in it that are pro-inflammatory. And if you look at the literature on PRP in the knee for arthritis or chondromalacia, the evidence is, is not so great. It's 50-50 on benefits. But if you really look at the articles, the people that were putting leukocyte-rich PRP into knees that had white cells were creating an inflammatory response in the knee. And not only was it pro-inflammatory, but white cells and red cells actually kill synoviocytes. So you're causing cell death. That's why people with hemophilia have crappy knees because they get multiple bleeds and, and you know blood in the joint isn't great long-term. You get blood in there, you want to get it out as soon as you can. Um, conversely, people that had leukocyte-poor PRP injections in their knee for arthritic conditions had, had really good outcomes. So if you actually look at what is being put in, you'll see a significant benefit with leukocyte poor PRP in joints, and you'll see a, almost an adverse or no benefit with leukocyte rich PRP. So always look at what the materials and methods are of the study. 
let's go to your elbow now. Now you've got a, a lateral condylitis or a bowler's elbow on the medial side, and you've you've got a you've got basically a repetitive microtrauma to the area. In fact, you've got a tendinosis more than a tendinitis. There is very little inflammation there. In fact, that hypovascularity is much like Codman's area in the shoulder, you know, the supraspinatus insertion. There's just poor blood flow. And when someone classically treats a tennis elbow, I've got hand partners who just take needles with saline and pepper the periosteum to induce bleeding and a inflammatory response. And that works about as well as a steroid injection would anyway. If you look at the literature though, there's level one and level two evidence that a leukocyte rich PRP injection is just as good as a steroid injection or occupational therapy for up to two years for a tennis elbow problem, which is really good. So you're taking, you know, and that's one of the things I talked to you about earlier, trying to improve your knowledge base as you go into practice. I mean, I've taken ultrasound courses, which actually turned out to be really helpful for placing orthobiologics where you have to put them. If you want to put them in the Tommy John ligament medially, there's a study that shows a longitudinal tear of the unocladal ligament in a baseball pitcher can respond to PRP or stem cells, and it can actually decrease the laxity of a valgus stress on the elbow. And there's an article by Luca Podesta, who's one of the um, um, uh, former team docs for the uh, Dodgers, and uh, they did dynamic, as you know, with ultrasound, you can move the arm and dynamically see how much that joint opens. So I'm not talking about a, a transected transverse cut of the ulnocladal ligament. That is not going to respond to PRP or stem cells. It has to be repaired, um, usually with, an, with a palmaris graft. And, you know, there are, there are indications for biologics and there's things that it's not going to help. And I'd like to try and sort those out a little bit. So... If you're dealing with a stretched ligament or a tendinopathic area, like the lateral condyle of the elbow, I do a lot of hip scopes. A lot of people with hip problems have actually gluteus medius tears, and more commonly, they have gluteus medius tendinitis, not, not necessarily a full thickness tear. Just like the rotator cuff, there's an awful lot of rotator tendinitis before you get a full thickness tear. Mm -hmm. Well, after all your colleagues and PAs have done 10 bursa injections on these lateral hip area problems and they're no better finally they get an mri and they go oh, you got a glute tendinitis well a leukocyte rich prp injection with ultrasound guidance into the area of the tear actually will give up to two years relief and it's a pretty minimally invasive procedure it's a percutaneous you know uh, placement of a needle into the area of tendinopathy and you're injecting leukocyte rich prp now when you get the rich, we talked about the rich and the poor, leukocyte rich requires 60 cc's of blood from the arm. So you're then going to put it in a centrifuge and you can selectively add the white cells to, a, to an area that you want a pro-inflammatory response. So a MCL of a, of a knee, a grade one or two knee ligament that's still painful, a uh, area of a tendon, a, uh, a ligament, places where you want a pro-inflammatory response, you want leukocyte rich PRP. And there's pretty good uh, studies in plantar fascial problems, rotator tendonitis, not great in the rotator cuff, but not, not as strong as other areas. Definitely good evidence on the elbow. Um, and certainly we just talked about the, the lateral hip. Uh, my doctorjohnerst.com website has a blog and that has 
a bunch of article reviews. So one of them is on Tennis Elbow, and if you want the references of the articles, just you know, you can look those up. Right, um, right. So let's go back to what we do as orthopedic surgeons. Our job, I tell people, is to get people's body parts to age 90. Okay. So, you know, as silly as it sounds, you know, you can't do hip replacements on everybody that's 30 years old or 40 years old. And you've seen what some of the outcomes are on knee replacements in people under 50. So what can you do to delay arthritis progression? And what can you do to tell patients what to do in order to get you know, get back to the golf course or, or avoid surgery or avoid a knee replacement or delay it. And you may not avoid it, but you may delay it. Well, what I do is I say, my job is to tell you what's wrong. Look at your x-rays and say, here's what you can do for it. So if you just break it into simple terms, there's injections and, you know, nobody wants to say rest and sit on a couch. Your family doctor already did that. You're an orthopedic surgeon. You're going to need to do something to get them better. Or they're going somewhere else. So you want to say, in the world of injections, there's four kinds. There's cortisone, fast acting, but doesn't last long. There's visco supplements, which are gels. They're only for knees and not approved in other, other parts of the body by the FDA. Those can last up to six months. They work on about 70% of people. And they're a cushioning only. They're a gel or a lubricant. And then there's two other biologic injections, PRP for mild conditions and stem cells for more serious conditions. And what I tell people is these biologics can delay a major surgery, like a joint replacement. And I tell them for years tentatively. Now we don't know really how long these may last. They have uh, been in the North American market for about five years. They've been overseas longer. Um, five, I mean, like four years ago, my wife's bone on bone hip. Um, I took her into a guy for that. I wasn't going to work on that. And he says, yep, you need a new hip. And she said, no, thanks. I don't want it. I'm in my fifties. I want to delay it. So I put stem cells in my wife in her hip four years ago. She still hasn't had her hip replaced and her x-rays are horrible. They're not bad. Mm. So <laughs> happy <laughs> wife, happy life. LeBron James said that. Don't, don't forget to write that down. Oh yeah. But, with, but you can't tell people that, Hey, your insurance is going to cover this. I'm in Dayton. We have right pad air force base here on a Wednesday. They'll do 20 biologic injections a day at right pad. And TRICARE that insures the military will pay for those. And part of it is that the government's so slow in getting to people's knee replacements, they got a two-year wait, they're going to approve PRP or in some cases stem cells, and they're going to cover that. Yep. Some of the Medicare secondary plans will also cover that. And I tell people, I don't know if they will, but at some point it's going to be a insurance decision where they look at the price of a knee replacement at 60 grand and the price of a, um, you know, stem cell injection in a, you know, three to 6,000 range, whatever people charge everywhere. And they're going to say, you know, maybe Betty's not even going to be on my insurance plan in three years. So maybe I'm going to approve this. Are they there yet? They aren't. But is there a lot of literature coming? There is. So you want to, you want to look at that. The uh, AOS, the uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery has made it a, a mandate to investigate more of the orthobiologics now. And so they're finally saying, well, maybe we should look at this. It's like, well, heck yes, you should. Um, but so on, on that question too, how often can someone get these in, injections? And I guess in what span of time is it once every six months, once a year? Or well, how does that question. work? So first of all, you know, I tell people if you, if you compare just PRP to gel injections, PRP will um, probably last a year to a year and a half. And it's a single injection from your arm. Pretty simple. Again, leukocyte pore, so it's only 15 cc, simple office injection. Um, 
Occasionally, if no one gets a response after, say, six weeks, some people repeat that. I rarely ever repeat any of my biologics. In fact, I've only done one. I've probably been doing stem cells for four years. I've been doing my PRP for probably six years. And I've repeated one stem cell in four years on a lady who just actually had a locked knee and had a crappy knee. I said, why don't you just replace it? It's been two years. She goes, I just want you to get the gravel out and throw some more stem cells in. I go, what about your other knee that I put stem cells in? She goes, it's fine. So I, I did because it was with a scope. So the way a lot of people may incorporate this into their practice is as an augmentation to their procedures. So when you're looking at uh, Bob the golfer, he's 45, he's got some mild to moderate chondromalacia patella and a little bit on the medial condo and he's got a meniscus tear. Well, we all can scope the knee and make the meniscus happy, but you're gonna lose some of the cushioning effect and then the chondromalacia problem is still gonna be there. So those are great indications to consider PRP with, or if they can afford it, some cartilage regrowth potential with stem cells. You're not gonna get any potential for cartilage growth using PRP alone. Mm -hmm. That gets you into what bone marrow aspirates can do, and they contain stem cells and osteoprogenitor cells, which can transform into osteoblasts and give you the ability for cartilage growth. Um, and you say, well, is that going to happen? And when's it going to happen? The answer is it's not going to happen very quickly. But if you look at, and there's some studies on my blog page about MRIs done um, before a stem cell injection, three months, six months, and 12 months later, and you don't really see any cartilage growth at three to six months, but at a year on MRI, you can see cartilage growth either by MRI or by second look scopes in most of the people, which is pretty encouraging. It's not going to make their x-rays look normal but they're gonna get a couple benefits early. They're gonna get the anti-inflammatory growth factors and, which control the pain and swelling. And then most people get a significant benefit from that in the early part of the injection. There are about three things we should talk about before you start sticking stem cells in people or even looking at it. One is, where do you get them from? And then number two, what's the FDA say about it? Because none of us will look good in prison stripes. Yeah. And three, which things do what and which things are really good and which things are not so good? And why would you one or the other? Well, we talked about growth factors in, in PRP. Well, there's 20 times the number of growth factors, those VEGFs and GEFs and growth endothelial factors, vascularized uh, growth factors, fibrinogenic growth factors, all those GFs. There's 20 times in a stem cell what there is in a PRP. So they have a much greater potential for anti-inflammatory effects and with growth factor effects. At our hospital in Dayton, uh, Charles Kettering, the guy who invented the modern day starter, every open heart surgery that has a sternotomy in, in, in the chest gets PRP put in the incision site at the end of the case. Like really? For so Gen Surge is using this as well? Yeah, and it's been, it was here before I started. And it was, oh, so it was already on the formulary. So when I started putting them in e-scopes, they were like, yeah, we, we don't care. We got a code for it. I don't know. You know, it's like, like I said, it's a wild west of coding. I tell people, you're going to get a charge. I don't know what it'll be. If you want us to do it, we will. Then you, the hospital and your insurance can fight it out. But let's talk about what you're allowed to do and what you shouldn't do and where things come from. The FDA says, number one, it is important to do three things. One, make sure that you take... Um, what's called homologous use for tissue that's going to go into a place it's supposed to be. Homologous use means if you take fat and stem cells come from like three main sources, they come from bone marrow, they come from adipose fat, and they come from fetal cells or amniotic cells. 
And when they come from the placenta of a C-section baby, those are true stem cells with some anti-inflammatory proteins. But when you take them out, put them in a, a, in a, in a factory, and then they put them in a syringe and dry them around to these people's offices in a salesman's trunk, what do you think those cells are like? They're dead. Okay, you go under a microscope, they're dead cells. Are they stem cells? Technically, they may have a few. Are they bioactive? Probably not. There's probably some of that anti-inflammatory effect people get. They spend a lot of money on it, and they get a shot of something that probably doesn't do much for them. Um, so um, the FDA has not endorsed that, but what they've done is they've said, we're going to give it a three-year window to see how this stuff shakes out, because we don't know what to tell people. What year are we in now of that three-year We're year probably window? close to the end of the second or third. Because this was something everybody wanted information, like what are we allowed to do? And they said, we're going to let the clinics do their thing, and then we're going to see if the stuff works. Because they don't really know. I mean, they can't decide whether you need a mask for a COVID infection. So <laughs> here's, here's what they basically tell you, you, you homologous use means. Let's say you get a shot in your butt, and it dissolves the fat under your skin. You got a dent there. Well, you can take fat from your side of your you know, abdomen, and you can liposuction that and stick it in your butt because that's a homologous area for fat. But there isn't any fat in your hip. So, you know, adipose-derived stem cells really are not FDA-approved for joints, for arthritis. Um, the um, adipose has a shit, can I say shit ton on? Yeah. Yeah, it just happened. It just happened. Michael Jordan said it in his thing. Doggone it. Anyway, there's a, <laughs> a boatload. There's a boatload of stem cells oh, in fat. So adipose has a lot of stem cells, and there's no doubt it does. The problem is for orthopedic surgeons, it's not really indicated for the things we do, which are joints. And we're not plastic surgeons. We don't do liposuction. Trust me, I know where the PSIS is. I put someone on their side. I numb up the area in the PSIS. I take an ultrasound to mark the uh, PSIS promontory. I took a little uh, local and I uh, aspirate the bone marrow. I spin it and I, and I use an ultrasound to put it in their hip. I'm using it in a homologous use. Really? The things I can't do, I can't, I can't store it overnight. I can't propagate it on a Petri dish in my, in my lab. Um, I have to take it. I'm allowed to concentrate. So these are these some of these spinner devices called centrifuges for different companies. And there's you know Arthrex, there's Harvest, there's um, um, Cell Cellular Solutions. There's a bunch of companies. All you want to ask them is is your device that's, that spins the blood and separates it an FDA approved device to to obtain stem cells. And if it is, that's what I tell my patients. I'm using an FDA approved centrifuge to concentrate. So you're doing a 12-fold concentration of the bone marrow. And the way it does it is actually pretty clever. They have a thing called a photocell in these machines, these centrifuges. And the photocells are like those things at the bottom of your garage that see when little Billy's walking out and it doesn't close the door on him, right? So the photocell looks at the cells going by and it says, this megakaryocyte is too big. It's not a stem cell. I don't want it. I do want the stem cells. I want some platelets. I want this. I don't want that. So it gets rid of the white cells, the red cells, things that are bad for joints, and it concentrates the um, the bone marrow aspirate for insertion into a into a joint. So if mm -hmm. patients want to do that, I would do it as a standalone procedure in their off in the office, and then it's just a cash thing, and I just tell them it's you know it's it's cash. You know, it's your it's your body. You just spent 
you know, $900 on your dog's nails. So spend $700 for a PRP injection on your knee that you got to walk on the rest of your life. Absolutely. And ironically, a new study just said at a year, a PRP injection is almost similar in some of the outcomes as a, as a stem cell. The thing you're not going to get with the PRP is any growth of cartilage stuff. Yeah. So I do outcome studies. I use Oxford uh, knee scores. I use hair hip scores. I use constant shoulders. And I use uh, rating scores on all my patients. One of the blogs looks at my last 140 knees that had stem cells for arthritis. And these are, these are crappy knees. These are bone-on-bone knees. They look like crap. I'll get some people braces if they want them and stuff. I don't do therapy on them. You can read all about it on my website. And, you know, I think this was just a great talk overall. We did really good with the, the graft options, then moving on to PRP. And it's just a lot of use for it all over the, all over orthopedics. So I really appreciate your time for coming on. Uh, we do have, again, this is Dr. John Erse, and he can be found at the drjohnerse.com. Also has the, has a blog on there uh, and also has a podcast. I was checking out his website. It's pretty, pretty nice. So. I'm pretty sure these everyone will enjoy it, and uh, hopefully uh, some people will learn a little bit more about PRP and bone grafts during this talk. Again, Dr. Erst, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. Wendell, Jay, I appreciate you having me on. Wow. You guys are uh, on the cutting edge doing some of these podcasts, and uh, you know I think it's uh, it's a great thing you're doing, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, especially this episode with Dr. Erst. We really appreciate him coming on. Uh, we hope you all learned a little bit about, you know, some autographs, allographs, some Gantelis bone chips, as well as some PRP injections, guys. So if you haven't already, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Um, leave us a rating, please. We love hearing you guys' feedback. And then follow us at NailedItOrtho.com as well as on Instagram at NailedItOrtho. All right, guys, until next time and the gals.